Hi, this is Rosie Tillis, and you're listening to the Resonant Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. We are joined today by Dr. Alicia Billington of Medical Advocacy. For those of you who don't know Dr. Billington, um, she did her MD, PhD, University of South Florida, and then residency at University of South Florida in Tampa as well, and then now um, is an assistant professor at East Tennessee State University. So we are very excited to have her joining us today to talk all things COVID. Um, Dr. Billington actually was um, one of the motivators that I had into going to plastic surgery. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> I do not know this. <laughs> um, I very specifically remember on my sub I at USF um, watching you suture up this person who had just had a shotgun injury to the face and you were in there with your little lily scrub cap and your cute loops and just jamming to some music. And I was like, all right, I can do this. Well, you did such a wonderful job and <laughs> I am so proud of you. And I've been following your podcast and you guys are just doing a phenomenal job. So it yeah. is so exciting to come full circle. <laughs> Thanks. Um, tell us a little bit about medical advocacy, your movement here. So medical advocacy is something I started as a medical student. It just sort of started as a Facebook group where we would post interesting articles and it's sort of grown over time uh, to be a way that people can talk about difficult topics in medicine in a safe environment. Everything is evidence-based. Um, it's not opinion-based. If it is, it has to be substantiated. It's been a really great source, especially during COVID where people that are afraid maybe to ask their doctor questions can come in and ask things and we've had some phenomenal posts by members in the group, and we're looking to expand and to get a podcast going. So I'll be learning from you guys. Yay. Well, we can't wait to hear it. Um, love following your Facebook group, love seeing kind of the types of questions that come up, because I feel like it gives a really good insight into um, not only what other doctors think, but what our patients are looking at and things that are important to them. And so it, I know that you've specifically at least helped me figure out how to communicate with people um, when it comes to challenging topics like this. So thank you. So let's go ahead and dive in, I guess. Um, let's just start by talking a little bit about COVID. I mean, we've been hearing about it for a year and a half now, I guess, um, and there's a lot of media hype, um, but that's that does not at all detract from how serious it actually is. So can you give us a little bit of insight into where we're at in terms of um, how, how bad COVID really is? How bad is COVID? So <laughs> What a simple question, right? And it's probably uh, the basis of all arguments related to COVID. Is this really a serious disease? Um, what are the numbers? And I think in COVID, we have seen the absolute best and the absolute worst of medicine at the exact same time. I mean, the creation of the vaccines, phenomenal. The, the misuse of data, abominable. So <laughs> it really comes down to statistics and to be able, uh, being able to assess data. So there's a famous statement um, in statistics, garbage in, garbage out. So if the data that you're collecting is garbage or the way that you collect the data is garbage, you can analyze it all you want, but everything that comes thereafter will be garbage as well. So is COVID really bad? I think a lot of people are looking at estimates of death associated with COVID, and there's been a lot of arguments about that, and, and some of them are very founded. Uh, are the estimates of COVID death over? Are they under? And a lot of this comes down to how the data was initially collected. So there are 50 states, there are territories, and each state kind of was collecting data differently. Um, some were saying that anything, uh, any patient that had a COVID test that died 
that counted as a COVID death, regardless of whether they actually died from COVID or from something else. Um, and so those numbers are really challenging to look at. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of people talk about 600,000, over 600,000 deaths attributable to COVID. Um, and I'm not going to make a, a, a guess as to whether we're over or under on our estimation. I'm just going to say that's something that we need to consider. And certainly it's a lot, it's a high number. So that's the first thing. Um, the second sort of question I think a lot of people ask is, how does this compare to the flu? Yeah. And, and that's something that I hear thrown around a lot. And the problem is you're comparing apples to oranges. So we didn't test as much for the flu as we test for COVID. I mean, we test everyone for COVID. They come in, they have symptoms, we're going to test them. So it's really hard to compare those numbers. And what we're seeing, regardless of what you say the flu numbers are, and regardless of what you say the COVID numbers are, there's a huge discrepancy. All we can say is a lot more people are getting sick from COVID than are getting sick from the flu. So this is a pretty serious thing. And so I, I think it's really interesting that not all the states were collecting data in the same way. So, you know, I've heard a lot of claims like, we don't really know who's dying from COVID and who's not, because half the time it's included on the death certificates, half the time it's not. And I guess that makes a lot of sense. And that's, that would be similar to the flu, I'm guessing, because you would see, at least I know when I fill out death certificates, it's like, you, you fill out all the sequela and those are the things that are causing the death, but you don't always list like the flu or COVID. Correct. So on a lot of the death certificates, if uh, COVID is a component of it, it gets listed. And then depending on the state, some of them were counting if COVID was listed, counting it as a death number as well. So that kind of keeping, so <laughs> yeah, kind of keeping that in mind and going, well, gosh, this data is like kind of all over the place. What are we going to do with it? What the CDC and other groups have said is, okay, that's confusing. Why don't we just look at how many people died? Like how many people died in 2020 versus the year before? That seems reasonable. So that, this yeah, is new. Like, this would like cause an increase in death if it really is yeah, new. Cause. Seems- so um, there are certainly studies out there that have looked at that. We saw that there was a over 17% increase in the number of deaths between 2020 and 2019, but year by year can kind of vary. So the CDC did an analysis where they sort of looked at over a period of time and they looked at what are the excess deaths that occurred. So it looks at from like 2013 to 2021. And what they found is, yeah, there are a lot of extra people that died than were expected, um, a pretty large amount. Now, some of the deaths went up in other areas as well. And when you look at this, you can't say, well, they're all attributable to COVID because you have to keep into mind, uh, people aren't going to the hospital for uh, heart attacks that are dying. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a downstream effect of COVID, but they didn't necessarily have COVID themselves. So there's a lot of other components that go into those deaths. But I think what we can say is looking at all of the data, the exact number is hard to say, but, but a lot of people have died from it. It's very serious. Yeah. That's really horrible. And we're seeing, I think we're seeing some of those downstream effects now at our hospital too, that, you know, the emergency rooms are full. So people can't get beds that's happening across the nation, actually, you know, for, for multiple different people, which is horrible. Um, and it's definitely, you know, not directly attributed to COVID, but it is a COVID effect. COVID effect. Yikes. So, um, you know, we've all heard about the virus and everything we've, we've heard about, we've seen the little molecule that the CDC, I guess, put out. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the infection itself and, and how it functions and, and how it, how it gets into people and how it works. Sure. And when you look at that picture, it's actually really beautiful, isn't it? It's, it is. I, I mean, it's a horrible thing, but you look at it and it's like, wow, this is so amazing how this virus functions. So uh, probably what everyone is most familiar with 
is this spike protein. And there are a lot of spike proteins on this virus. And what they do is they bind to the ACE receptors. And from med school, we remember that our ACE receptors, they're in our lungs, they're in our GI system, which kind of explains why some people are having GI symptoms associated with the virus. Um, so once it binds, there's a host uh, cell or a, a host protein called temporis, which I like the name that it sounds, I don't know, it sounds fancy. Uh, and it, it cleaves the spike protein and it allows the virus to fuse to the cell to empty the contents into it. It's just kind of how a lot of viruses sort of work in this fashion. What I think is really fascinating about this virus is what happens when the genetic material gets in. So the mRNA from the virus actually goes and turns off the cell's ability to alert the body of infection. It turns off the ability of the cell to make its own mRNA. So it's not making other proteins. It's not releasing interferons. So it's kind of like shutting everything off and then it makes a bunch of itself and then it goes and it gets released. And the mechanism through how that works is kind of confusing and being debated whether it goes to the Golgi apparatus or whether it goes to the lysosomes, but then it exits the cell and there's another uh, enzyme called furin, which then cleaves the amino acids on the spike protein um, and allows it basically to go out and replicate um, in other cells. The problem is the human body is not sensing this infection sort of until there's so much virus and then it has a massive immune response. And so that's why we're seeing dexamethasone being so effective because it was actually suppressing that immune response because we were essentially overreacting um, to the infection. Wow, that makes sense. That that makes sense kind of uh, just colloquially that I've seen it either is like a very localized infection or it tends to go systemic and have this huge massive SIRS kind of response where you get inflammation everywhere, all different systems affected. Um, that's wild that it kind of, it turns off it, your own cells and turns it into COVID cells. It does. It's just really smart of the virus. I mean, it's fascinating how it works. Interesting. And so some of our vaccines target different parts of that response. Is that right? That is correct. So the mRNA vaccines that we have are actually targeting that spike protein and they're okay. binding in them so that they can't go through that whole process of entering in. And the mRNA vaccines those are all except for one of them. Is that correct? So it's, I think Pfizer is mRNA, Moderna's mRNA, J&J's mRNA. Correct. And then there's also the AstraZeneca, which is mm -hmm. pretty similar to the Johnson Johnson. We don't have that in the United States, but that's the one you hear about a lot in the UK. That's an adeno, uh, I believe an adenovirus. It's the cold virus mm -hmm. uh, and it's uh, modified or inactivated. Do you know why we don't have that here? Just out of curiosity. Um, I'm not sure why the, the I, I actually don't know that. I'm not sure why the trials haven't uh, gone through yet. I'm always curious because our healthcare systems are so different, if that makes a difference in what's approved. Um, I know a lot of people have expressed concern regarding the speed at which these are developed. Um, and I just think it's it's so important to note that we've had this technology for years and years, and we've just now been able to expedite it. I think, is it because of the increase in funding and interest, or is it just because we're finally there? What a great question. And I'm so glad that you brought that up. Yes, it's it's all of the above. Uh, also, I think it's a lot of red tape has been removed. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? It means that we were able to get all of the minds that needed to be together at the same time to focus on this issue because it's the most important quote unquote issue right now happening to us. So a lot of things that would have slowed us down paperwork wise, that was removed, but all of the safety checks, those are still in place. And I think that is most ex exemplified by the fact that anytime there's a side effect, and we're talking like five people in the world have a side effect, 
it's on the news. <laughs> so it's true. There is nothing that's ever been more studied uh, from a side effect standpoint that I can ever think of in the history of medicine. I mean, this is it and it's happening in real time and we're talking about it on a daily basis. So um, yes, it has gone through faster than other vaccines have before. But like you said, this has been in development for years. And also we have more people working on it than ever before. I mean, it's kind of something that even in plastic surgery, we're writing articles about COVID mm -hmm. and its effects on patients. So imagine what people that study viruses all the time, like they're, this is all that they're doing right now. <laughs> this, this is their jam. <laughs> I feel like they've also, you know, just speaking from like research experience, all of these vaccines and the trials and everything you spoke about removing the red tape, they kind of also jumped the line too. Like everyone else took a vaccine and realized that, all right, there's more important things to do. Like let's put the COVID vaccines first on the FDA's plate so they can look at these and then we'll get to like my experimental device or whatever I'm going to, you know, think about later, but there's bigger problems. I think, I think that's fair to say that it definitely took a precedent. Yeah. Um, well, really happy that it did really happy that people are getting vaccinated. And we started rolling these out in November, December of 2020. Um, and it felt like forever before we got them rolling out. And it feels like, you know, we've had a good amount of time. How many people, I think I saw a recent statistic, like 70% of people in the U.S. are vaccinated. Is that accurate? Let me look at my dad. How many people in the U.S. are vaccinated? Um, all ages, at least one dose, um, it's 58%. Um, this was as of three days ago, um, fully vaccinated. It's going to be 50, but it, it varies by age group. So if mm -hmm. you're looking at 65 and up at least one dose, 90%. That's amazing. If you're looking, if you're looking at 18 up 71%. So yes, the statistic that you gave is, is the one that we would talk about because a lot of the younger children aren't able to get vaccinated yet. Right. So looking at the people that can get vaccinated, um, that would be like the 12 and up group, about 68% have had at least one vaccine, 59% uh, wow. have had both. And over the coming months, you know, more and more kids are going to get vaccinated. And also more and more trials are opening up with various age groups to let those kids in. Yeah. What are we seeing with the, the opening up of the age groups here? Cause I know kids are going back to school, hot topic especially in yes. Florida, our, our yes. alma mater. Um, masking in schools is sometimes effective, sometimes not, because kids are kids. What can we do? Are people going to, are kids going to end up getting vaccinated? Yeah, so the, both Pfizer uh, and Moderna have studies that are ongoing right now. Um, they're looking at, I think in the, the Pfizer study, they've, they've already been having kids for a while. Um, they're going to go down to as low as six months with, uh, with the testing, and they're doing it in phases. Um, they're looking at five to 11 year olds, two to five year olds, and then they'll do six months to two years olds. And uh, I actually logged on just to see what the availability was for some of these for my daughter. She's one year old. And, um, and I believe the five to 11 year old group, like you can't, you can't register, like they're already full. <laughs> full. Um, yeah. So, uh, so a lot of data will be coming on kids in the near future. And it seems just, um, from talking to people that a lot of these kids are actually going to be kids of people in the healthcare system. So if you see that doctors are, and nurses are doing it, um, I think that says a lot about their faith in the vaccine process. I think so too. Um, one interesting thing, I'm not sure, you know, we, we haven't talked about this or anything yet, but 
I've seen that a large amount of nurses are unvaccinated compared to other healthcare workers like doctors. And I don't know if you've seen that in your area too. I think a lot of that, at least from things that I've read, has stemmed from the fact that there's concerns about fertility with the vaccine. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure if those are exactly related or if that's just stories that I've heard. What What do you know about like fertility in the vaccine? Is that a real risk? So there's a lot of misinformation. And one of the big pieces of misinformation was about fertility. So I have been asked that quite a bit. I actually ask every single patient that comes into my clinic, are they vaccinated? And if not, we talk about why. And that's like a lot of people that I've talked to in the last year about this vaccine. I mean, I literally spend about five minutes with every single patient going over this and it's never to convince them. It's always to educate them and to, to learn from them. What, what, you know, what are they afraid of, but, or finding, um, there have been multiple studies looking at uh, fertility uh, and pregnancy loss. And we found that the incidences are very similar to what's published um, pre-COVID times. So no, it, uh, you know, I, I've had also just um, on, a, on a small case basis, I've had multiple friends that were pregnant that got the vaccine and delivered healthy children. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it's scary. And they, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, um, the pediatrician groups, they've all, you know, said, Hey, we need to get kids vaccinated. We need to get moms vaccinated. And they've also looked at breastfeeding and all of these things have been shown to be overwhelmingly safe. Yeah. I did see the new recommendations from ACOG, um, and all of the, all the different societies urging, you know, all women of all um, gestational ages to go ahead and get vaccinated because then you can pass along the, um, antibodies to your, to your baby which I think is incredible since we're just starting to get down in those trials to the younger ages. Right. And so actually another question about the trials, is that how other vaccine trials work? Do they end up just making them younger and younger until we find out at what age you should be vaccinated? I believe that's traditionally how it has been done is they do go younger and younger. I don't know. Um, uh, I haven't, I haven't studied that as extensively yeah. as COVID, but uh, that is my understanding is they typically, you know, start with one population and, and move to like more at-risk populations as they go. And then do you think this will end up being like a yearly shot? Like we get like the flu shot? Ooh. Okay. So that's a great question that kind of gets into a couple of other topics um, such as breakthrough. Uh. And <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we can talk about, uh, we can talk about breakthrough if you want in variants. Um, so let's talk about variants first, because I think everyone is talking about Delta and that's sort of a hot topic right now. So looking at the effectiveness of the vaccines that we currently have, and for the most part, I'm, I'm typically speaking of Moderna and Pfizer, um, just because I think a lot more people have that vaccine, um, if we look at the effectiveness after two doses, there's a study in the UK that showed with the alpha strain, which is the first strain, so to speak, that we had, uh, the vaccine, uh, the Pfizer vaccine is about 94% effective. And with the Delta, it was about 88% effective. So a little bit less effective, but if you look at the effectivity of vaccines prior to COVID, that's really good. That's huge. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Okay. Uh, my daughter just got her one-year-old vaccines. And I went back and I looked at, to see like how effective were each of those vaccines. Like they're not, they're not this good. Right. And we like willingly accept all of these other vaccines. And before this data came out on Pfizer and, and Moderna, um, we were like, yeah, anything like close to 70%. Wow. That would be like amazing. And then we hit 93%. And now people are complaining like, well, it went down to 88 
or whatever, you know, some, somewhere like that's still really good. So <laughs> the <laughs> overwhelmingly, the vaccines are still very effective, even for uh, the variant strains that we're seeing now this could change over time. These numbers could change over time. Different populations will see different things. Um, but overwhelmingly, yes, that's like a great thing. Um, as far as breakthrough data. So this kind of gets to the booster shot or do we need more shots kind of question. Yeah. So the CDC stopped looking at breakthrough cases, uh, I think back in May. Uh, Kaiser has done a study where they've sort of kept track looking at all of the individual states, which is like drives me nuts. Like, why do we have 50 different systems of recording what's going on with the virus? Like one would I, be good. If we know. could figure that out, it would make everything a heck of a lot easier. Not only COVID life. <laughs> if I could just look at somebody's on? records, like came from out of state and it would work functionally, huge changes. Yeah. I mean, cause like Florida and Georgia, like we don't speak like the same language mm -hmm. and you know, like the roads don't cross the state mm -hmm. boundaries. So like clearly, yeah. I, uh, my mind. <laughs> but uh, so Kaiser just came out with a study um, in July and they looked at things like, okay, if you are vaccinated, um, how many people, what's the percentage of people getting COVID? If you're vaccinated, what's the percentage of people that are getting COVID and hospitalized? Mm -hmm. If you're vaccinated, what are the percentage of people that are getting COVID hospitalized dying? It's like really low. It's, I mean, it's less than 1% of people that are vaccinated are going to test positive for COVID. And that's not even saying like you're getting sick from it. That's just saying like you test positive for it. Mm -hmm. And we're testing people. What does that mean? It means absolutely nothing unless you're sick from it. That's true. Because it if, really you, if, you're not, if you're not sick from it, you're not going to give it to anybody else from what we understand, right? Like right. usually if you're symptomatic, you're spreading it. If you're asymptomatic, you're not spreading as much. Right, because so, that's how it spreads, right, is the right. symptoms. Right, but even so, less than 1%, okay? And then if you look at the amount hospitalized, we're like talking less than 0.06%. I looked up the state of Tennessee, which is where I am, um, and I think the hospitalizations are 0.01%. Oh okay, so like really low. Um, the risk of death, it, and in some instances, it's so low that they're essentially equating it to zero. So, I mean, it's like super, super less than 1%. Mm -hmm. So breakthrough cases, it doesn't look like it's that bad yet. Now, there are things in the news about, um, about some areas that are having some higher event breakthrough cases, but these are low end values. And I think we need to research a lot more about what's going on there before we can you know, make broader assumptions, but, um, you know, looking at the Kaiser data, which is looking at all 50 states, I mean, we're talking, that's thousands and thousands of, of people that we're looking at, and we're seeing really good data. Um, Israel also had an excellent study where they looked at healthcare workers. They had 11, over 11,000 people were vaccinated. Um, and this was with the alpha variant, not with, or, uh, not with the Delta. So the alpha, the original strain, not the, not the variant. Um, and their breakthrough cases was extremely low, uh, also less than 1%. So, hmm. I mean, anecdotally, um, I mean, I've been vaccinated my circle of friends has been vaccinated and, and far out as well. And I know, honestly, I know of at least three or four breakthrough cases, but I think the, the important thing that I've noticed again, anecdotally is that the, when the people that I know have gotten these breakthrough cases and actually tested positive, not everyone in their close circle has. So obviously the vaccine has some, you know, protective nature of people right real close by. And then also their symptoms are like minimal to none. 
Like the only re- the only way they found out is they lost their t- sense of taste or smell. And it, it was way more surprising to me that how many people were getting it, but I was like, oh, it's totally mild. So they're not, probably not spreading it everywhere with their symptoms. They're obviously not spreading it to their close loved ones and everything. But I just thought that was really interesting. Like even within families, like the people who have been vaccinated, so much more mild than the people who have not. Yes. And we're also seeing that with the people that do get the illness, it's for a a much shorter course. So not only is it more mild, um, Mm -hmm. you know, more likely to be asymptomatic entirely, but if they do get sick, that they're, they're not going to be sick for as long. So thus they'll have less of a chance to spread it, which is Mm -hmm. the case. That's really good news. Oh, so an answer to your question, booster. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sometimes I get on a tangent. Uh, Same. The, the data looks pretty good, right? For, yeah. like if, if we came out and said like it was in the high 80s, like we'd all, we wouldn't even be talking about anything else, but it started right. higher in the 90s and now we're talking about it. So they just came out, the FDA may be approving a third uh, booster dose for people that have really decreased immune systems. And I think part of that is some doctors are coming out and saying, look, for people that are severely immunocompromised and maybe didn't have like, a good effect from the virus. I don't know if they're looking at titers. They're saying some people are actually going out on their own patients and getting heard this. another vaccine. Yeah. Um, either switching to a different brand or just <laughs> more vaccine of the same type. That's, that's bad, right? Like that's scary. Like that's yeah. stuff that we don't know what's going on that gets uncontrolled. So I think in those people, they're saying like, okay, it makes sense. The world health organization though, has come out and said they're not in favor of the booster yet because they want the whole world to get vaccinated. They want that first shot to come out. Um, Paul Offit, who works on um, approving these vaccines, um, when I last looked at what he had said, he had said kind of like, we need to see more data first before we start talking about this um, broadly for the entire population. So I think there'll be more to come on that. But right now I'm feeling pretty good, pretty covered with my vaccine that goes back to when it all, you know, when it first came out. So Definitely. Yeah. Have they looked at titers from people yet? I mean, I'm sure that they're doing all of this within the studies themselves, but has, have they released any data on titers like months yeah. ago? Yeah. Pfizer and Moderna have come out with information on, uh, on the titers. You know, the, the question though, is like, really like, who cares about the titers? Are you getting sick from it? Right. Cause true. we talk, we talk about positive tests. We talk about titers, talk about all these things, but if it's not making people sick, and does it really matter? Um, and so some of the data that I had seen, I think it was Pfizer, they had tested like, I think it was like 30 people and shown like with the booster that it goes up. So like, what does that mean? I, you know, that's right. just a low, that's a low number of people. So I think those things are sort of ongoing and we'll be seeing more uh, in the near future. Yeah. But again, like I said, if you're not getting devastatingly ill from it and having to go to the hospital and use resources like where other people need them, then it's it's okay. And no other illness that I can ever think of has anything ever been more studied. Yeah. And you know, maybe we all have been running around with like low levels of infection of other diseases that we've been vaccinated against, but we're not sick. So who cares? You know, That's it, so did true. it did its like job. It did its job. Exactly. Like I could get a really mild case of the flu and be like kind of annoyed and also very happy that I did not get a worse case of the flu. That's right. So when we're talking about like these boosters and everything, people are wondering, I think if it'll be more effective with the variants. And I know that this virus continues to mutate. And I saw you know, on the news, there's another variant coming up. 
the lambda. <laughs> the lambda. We're just going to go all the way down the Greek alphabet. Uh, yeah. What do we need to think about with these new variants? I think that way too much focus is being put on the variants and not enough focus is being put on the vaccines. So mm -hmm. I, I think what's happening is all the people that were super excited about getting the vaccines, they've already been vaccinated. And all the people that are like, there's no way I'm ever getting vaccinated. They haven't been vaccinated and they're probably not ever going to. That's true. It's the people in the middle that are like, I kind of wanted to wait. Like you said, like maybe this was rushed through. I want to see some more data. Those are the people that need to get vaccinated mm -hmm. because those are the people that are going to turn this around. I think by focusing on things like the variants and scaring people, why would you go out and get a vaccine when you're kind of scared of it if it's not really going to help you? That's kind of the message that patients are coming and telling me. That's not the truth. That's right. not what's happening, but that's how people are feeling. And so that's why I think it's really important to focus on the benefits of the vaccine over not getting the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Is the vaccine perfect? No, it's not. But, um, but getting vaccinated sounds a heck of a lot better than not getting vaccinated as far as side effects go. Definitely. And there's like a lot of, definitely a lot of fear mongering going on, I'm sure. Um, and related to that includes all of the fear mongering and politicization of masks. Mm. Uh, so our, we have a couple lines of defense, obviously, when dealing with the virus. And initially it was masks and we didn't have the vaccine. Now it was the vaccine. And then we didn't have to wear masks for a little bit. And now when people are get excited and all get together again, turns out masks might be a good idea, which I think we know because there were significantly less like colds and flus last year, but are masks like working for us? And are they working at the level that we're wearing them now? And, and how, how are we going to maintain this? That's a hard sell. I mean, <laughs> it's also a hard sell to tell somebody, Hey, you should go get vaccinated, but you're still going to have to wear your mask. I right. think that's, uh, that's really a hard one uh, to get yeah. over. Cause it's like, well, like that's how we sold it. Oh, like get vaccinated. You won't have to wear a mask. And now we're like, Oh, just kidding. I don't know if you got vaccinated. <laughs> this is a decision way over my head. There's a lot of smarter, much smarter people than me or not making these decisions. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I, I think it comes down to like, what, what is the risk? So if you're going to go see someone, your grandmother, and she's not vaccinated, she doesn't believe in it. And you're vaccinated. That's probably someone I'd want to wear a mask for. I'd want to protect her. Right. Um, if you're going to go see your colleague who's a plastic surgery resident at their house and you're going to have dinner together and you're both vaccinated, do you, do you both need to wear masks? That sounds a little bit less reasonable. So I think the idea is looking at the risk, which is sort of what the CDC has said. They've like tried to put it on us, right? Like, so if you're in an area where there's like very high transmission, which is unfortunately, you look at the map, it's like, all high transmission. Um, so I'm like, is that really a choice? Um, I, I think what they're trying to say is like, use your, use your judgment. The problem with that is that people that tend not to get vaccinated are also people that tend not to think that this is as big of a deal or also people are not likely to wear a mask. So, um, probably the people that are going to end up wearing the masks are probably the people that are vaccinated. <laughs> we know that wearing the mask helps reduce the inoculum effect. So one of the, the, the benefits, cause I remember reading and going like, why, why are we wearing masks? Like, how is this helpful? And I saw one study that I, that has really stayed with me and it, it was basically 
let's say you sneeze and the virus gets out because you're wearing a cloth mask or something. It's preventing the amount of virus that gets out. And if you get inoculated with a lower amount, the studies have shown you are less likely to get sicker. So that to me like made sense. Okay. Like I'm actually like physically giving you less of the virus. So maybe you'll get less sick when you do catch it. Mm -hmm. So that sounds reasonable. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. It's an interesting, um, interesting look at the populations of people who are at risk, people who didn't, didn't get vaccinated and then seeing how much those overlap to see kind of what, what risk are presenting the community with when we walk outside. Um, and I know that you, you mentioned something that's been really important to me. You mentioned you're talking to your patients a lot about this. Um, I have trouble talking to patients and passionate family and friends who um, don't, don't agree with getting vaccinated. So you obviously do this multiple times a day. Uh, how, what, do you have any tips or tricks? Like, what can I say? How do I start this conversation in a way that's non-threatening? Because right now, everybody's been so inundated with it that they automatically, everyone's defensive because they right. feel like they have to be. Um, but I don't want to be that person. I just, I want to give information and feel like I've done my part. And then what they decide to do with that, you know, hopefully you've just nailed it. Your, your job is not to convince anyone of doing anything, right? Like that's because that's our job as doctors always. It's yeah. never to force someone to have surgery. It's never to force someone to have a medication that they don't want. It's always to have a conversation with them. Um, I think of it like end of life care, like what a horribly uncomfortable conversation to have with people. We have to have it because it's the right thing to do. They still get to make the choice though. We don't make the choice of the decision. So uh, gosh, I have family members who I love, I respect, I think so much of, uh, and they really don't believe in the vaccine. They don't believe in masking. They don't really believe in COVID to some degree. And I actually have talked to all of them trying to learn from them. And early on, I was getting very frustrated with just people in general and what I was seeing on Facebook. So I actually, on the Kevin MD uh, website, there's a couple of articles I've written about like misinformation and how to talk to people. But I think one of the biggest lessons I learned is I don't get upset and I don't look at it as a, a I won or a, I lost conversation. So if someone comes in and they're worried about you know, something to do with the vaccine, they ask me questions, I'll give them the information. And if at the end they say, you know what, I'm not willing to take that risk. Like that's, that's totally cool. Like that's your decision. So I think once you change your mindset to like, check, I win or, Oh, I didn't get that person. That's helped me a lot. Cause otherwise I'd be sad a lot of the day <laughs> when half of the people coming in are like, yeah, I'm not going to, I don't, I don't want the vaccine after you told me all this stuff. Um, but, but you'll be surprised at actually how many people go, Oh, I didn't know that. And people are a lot more open to it, especially if you phrase it like, you know, have you been vaccinated? Yes or no. Okay. And they'd be like, Oh, what are your reasons? Like, wh what have you been reading about? And then they tell me, and a lot of times I'm actually learning from them about the misinformation that they're seeing. Sometimes I haven't heard of it. I'll have to go look it up. Most of the time I'm kind of, you know, what the pulse of Facebook is. <laughs> and I say, Oh, I, you know, I say, yeah, you know what? I saw that too. Let's talk about it. That's all I say is let's talk about it. And I say, here's what I saw. This was really scary. I totally agree. Like if that's the case, I'd be terrified as well. Here's some of the science behind it. And here's what I've seen. What, what are your thoughts? And sometimes people go, oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm gonna go get it now. That's great. But sometimes they'll say no. That's okay. <laughs> I really like that. I, I like the approach of 
what are your reasons? Because that implies like a level of respect for their choices and allows them to talk about their choices and their beliefs without automatically being defensive. They're kind of like proud of it. And then, and then kind of develop on that. That's like really, really nice. And, well, it, it, yeah. I think it's been effective. I don't know, but um... I mean, your success rate is higher than I figure most people's. And I think a lot of people just enjoy having like a doctor who will talk to them um, in like a, a very non-defensive way and non-aggressive way. So I'm sure that well, makes sense. As a plastic surgeon, it's like, why the heck am I asking these questions? And in the height of COVID, because I might be the only doctor that they literally see for eight months. Like I'm it. I'm the only person that they're talking to. And so that's kind of why I started it initially. And now it's just become, I stopped for like a month and a half because I was just so over it. (laughs) Once once the mask came off, I was like, COVID's over here. Not really, but I mean, I knew it was coming back, but I was like, I needed a break. And and now it's like, okay, it's time to talk about it again because that's all that all the news is talking about. So again, right. Like we all know it's coming back around and yeah, no one's living under a rock anymore. Thanks to all of the availability of social media and all of the media. So yeah, the news has just been so positive with everything. So, oh, gosh, so good. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I can barely watch them anymore. I mean, it's, it's all just so overwhelming. Um, I actually don't, I, I get all my news from, um, from alerts from my medical advocacy, like sources. That's how I find out when, when things are happening and then I'll go and I'll actually look up the news, but I just, it's so negative. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. Where do you find like accurate news and and things like that for medicine? Um, yeah, there's a bunch of different groups. Like the AMA has something that comes out. Um, I do get, um, kind of like, I think it's daily or weekly alerts from like the New York times and things like that. Mm -hmm which can be biased. So I read the wall street journal also, I'd like try to balance it out. Um, mm-hmm. but there's also things like med page today, Kevin MD. Um, th- there's a bunch, of, I don't even know, like half this stuff I've signed up for. And I don't even, remember <laughs> I probably wake up and every day I have about three or four sources that are just coming in all about COVID. Um, mm-hmm. so it's a little inundating, but I, I try to try to keep up with it. And then every once in a while, I'll need like a week or two break. <laughs> Oh my gosh. You end up with 500 unread emails and you're just trying to furiously swipe through, or is that just me? I don't know. So mine's like probably got a few more decimal points. Such <laughs> 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 anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, well, anything else that you think would be helpful for people? I think we covered pretty much everything that people sent us and all of my burning questions. Um yeah, I think the only the only other thing I can think of is uh, we didn't really talk too much about side effects. Um, so mm-hmm. I'll just throw out there that yeah. basically all of the side effects that we're seeing, there's a much higher risk of developing those side effects with the actual virus. Right. And I think we're about to get to a point where we become we're going to become a vaccinated uh, group and a group that has had COVID or has COVID. Mm-hmm. There's not going to be people that don't have COVID anymore. You're either going to be vaccinated or you're going to have had COVID. And so you have to choose, do you want to have the side effects of the vaccine or do you want to have the side effect, not side effects, do you want to have the potential of side effects of the vaccine or do you want to have the potential of side effects of COVID? And if you're looking at things like blood clots, um, if you're looking at the cardiac effects, myocarditis, pericarditis, mm-hmm. all of those things are significantly higher in the COVID group than That's in true. the vaccine group, significantly That's higher. True. So when you look at it like that, it's kind of more black and white. Um, yeah. and the other thing is, 
if I can put a plug in for statistics, like we have, we have so far to go in this country. We have, that's the one place that we really just did it wrong. <laughs> if we had done that one thing better, we'd be in a different place than we are now. So I think um, statistics, probability, Bayes theorem, those need to be essential parts of the medical curriculum. They mm -hmm. should be in the nursing curriculum. That's my one plug to make That's it better so for the future. We yeah. have to be able to talk about pretest probability um, because we really screwed that up. It should be in all curriculums. I mean, we learn a little bit about it in like high school and things like that, but I think we're realizing that this is like gonna, this is a bigger part of life than I think a lot of people realized. Yeah, That's math crazy. is actually important after all. <laughs> oh my gosh, it came back. <laughs> oh, it's my favorite thing in the world. I, oh love, I love the math. But... So much math. Uh, well, I really appreciate you talking with me today. This has been amazing. And I, I'm actually really excited that I, I'm kind of armed with some more information so I can talk to family, friends, and patients about this because I think, you know, you've proved that it's definitely, it is our job too even as plastic surgeons. It is. And don't be, don't be afraid to be wrong and to say, I don't know, because there's lots of times and I don't know the answer and I go look it up and I find out, Hey, there isn't an answer yet. So, uh, I'm sure some of the stuff we talked about today in a month will be fake news. <laughs> oh my Hopefully not fake news. But. No, I mean, I really appreciate all the, all the work you've put into this and everything. Um, and for everybody listening, thanks so much. Um, follow Dr. Billington on social media at medical advocacy um, and on Facebook and all of that as well. Um, and then follow her new podcast coming out to you. You can visit our website for more information, theresonterview.com. Um, and we will be putting out some more episodes soon. Thanks so much, Dr. Billington. It's Thank wonderful. you. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.